Uh, I wonder if you've ever experienced a gotcha moment, uh, a gotcha moment. Uh, it's a situation where uh, uh, something has been constructed, a, a, a situation has been constructed where you're forced to make a choice that has no good option. Uh, here's a real-world example from about a month ago. Uh, it comes from across the ditch in Melbourne where a guy named Andrew Thornburn uh, was about to become the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, the Bombers. Uh, it's uh, an Aussie rules football club. I won't, I won't bore you with the, the rules of that game. Uh, but uh, think of it as the, becoming the equivalent of the, as the CEO of the Hurricanes, right? It's that kind of le that level of prominence. Uh, it's a pretty important job. Uh, Thornburn had been through a rigorous selection process. He'd been approved by the club's board. Uh, he had accepted the position. It was the club that he followed since he was a young boy. Uh, almost everyone is convinced that he is the right person for the job. And then one day into the job, one day into the role of being the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, along comes his gotcha moment. A journalist reveals on Twitter that the new CEO is also the member of a church, an Anglican church that takes a traditional biblical view of marriage and human sexuality. It happens to be that that church is called Seed on a Hill as well. Um, but uh, we're friends with those guys, but we're not the same church. Anyway, um, uh, this church holds a, a traditional biblical view on those things. Andrew Thornburn is a member of that church. Uh, the view that the church holds on those things was the law only a few years earlier. But this journalist thought that being a Christian was not compatible with the club's diversity and inclusivity policy. And so you can see where this is going. Uh, it makes it onto Twitter. Twitter explodes. The Premier of the state of Victoria uh, weighs in at a press conference, and he says that someone who holds those views should not be in public leadership. Later that day, Thornburn uh, has been CEO for less than 24 hours. He's called into the boardroom, and he's given two options. Either he renounces his church or he resigns immediately. That was it. That's his gotcha moment. The journalists, the Twitterati, the Premier of Victoria, they all got their scalp, didn't they? They chucked him to the lions. Uh, and in the process, they've sent a clear message to the rest of us. This is not made up. This happened in Australia a month ago. Uh, they've sent a clear message to the rest of us, haven't they? Here's what Andrew Thornburn wrote uh, on his LinkedIn profile. He said, uh, yesterday was one of the proudest days of my life to be offered the role of CEO of the Essendon Football Club, whom I followed since I was a boy. It was a profound honour. However, today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed. They made it clear that my Christian faith and association with a church was unacceptable in our culture if you wish to hold a leadership position in our society. I, I do not make that up. It is a modern-day Daniel and the lion's den, isn't it? The similarities are uncanny. You can have the job, you just need to renounce your God. You can enjoy the freedoms and blessings of being part of our wonderful society. You just need to reject what God says in His Word. You can participate in public life. You just need to leave your faith behind. It sounds just like Daniel chapter 6. You can imagine Daniel writing a similar thing on his LinkedIn profile moments before he thrown into the lion's den. Uh, yesterday was one of the proudest moments of my life of service of the kings of Babylon and Persia. 
After decades of faithful service, I was offered the role as chief administrator over all the kingdom. However, today it has become clear that my faith in God and my association with the people of God is unacceptable in our culture. And into the lines then he was thrown. Now, it's a situation, and I'm not, I, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic. It's a situation that's becoming more and more common. We actually preached on Daniel chapter 6 about uh, seven years ago, about a year into our church plant here. And I don't think I would have been saying now the things that are realities now. Back, back then, I didn't, don't think we would be at this point so quickly. Now, the situation is more and more common, uh, not of actually being thrown to a pit of hungry lions, uh, but being forced to have to choose the gotcha moments. What's it going to be? Is it going to be your faith or is it going to be your freedom? Is it going to be Christ or your career? Is it going to be God or keeping a good reputation? Increasingly, we're being told that we can't have both. And many of us right here in this room, we've experienced this already in our workplaces or our schools, in our sporting clubs, even possibly in our families. You can't follow Jesus and work in this place. You can't worship God and enjoy these freedoms. You can't go to that church and be welcome at this table. You can't teach the Bible and use these facilities. I'm sure that day is coming. And some of us know that these decisions, they're happening already in education, in politics, in healthcare, uh, in our large corporations, in our universities. And so living in this moment, we have this timely word from God, a part of the Bible that really feels like it was written for times like these, where we're being forced to choose. Will we remain faithful to Christ when the pressure comes to compromise? Will we keep honouring God, even if it's going to cost us in real terms? Not just minor kind of social embarrassment, but it might cost us financially, possibly even physically. And I find this really hard because, you know, what? I, I really want to live a comfortable life. Uh, I don't want to be in the papers, I don't want to be cancelled. I don't want to have to deal with conflict. I'm a person who likes people to like me. I just want us to all get along, to have... I want to, I want to take, take all the opportunities that this, this, this modern 21st century uh, society has to offer. I want to be treated fairly like everyone else. And so the temptation is just to go with the flow, to not stand out, to keep my head down, to, to keep quiet, to not rock the boat. And so how do we remain loyal to God? How do we remain faithful to Him when the world tells us that it's going to cost us? Well, Daniel chapter 6. Uh, if you grew up in uh, going to church, or even if you didn't, chances are you've heard this story before. Uh, and to look at what this story has to say, we're going to look at the three key characters, Daniel, Darius the king, and then we'll go back to Daniel again, and then we're going to look at God. Uh, so what do we know about Daniel, uh, this man who's put in this situation? The first thing we see about Daniel is that he is distinguished, yet he is despised. Uh, he's distinguished, yet he's despised. By the time chapter 6 rolls around, uh, Daniel is no longer kind of a young whippersnapper who's just been brought over from Jerusalem, who's been eating water and veggies. We meet Daniel here, and he's elderly. 
Daniel is actually in the twilight of his life. He's been diligently serving in the royal court for many decades, continually serving and continually remaining faithful to his God. Uh, it's nearly time for Daniel to cash in his Kiwi saver, to kind of draw down on his um, public service pension, uh, to take up lawn bowls and enjoy his retirement. But there's a new boss, a new king in town, Darius. And even with the change of king, and even with Daniel's graying hair, he, his star continues to rise in Babylon. Uh, he is, uh, not only is he one of the three administrators over all the kingdom, but the king is about to promote him to be his 2IC, to be his right-hand man. Verse 3, have a look there. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. You see, Daniel was the man for the job. He was a distinguished servant. He had earned his place at the top. But Daniel's faithful service, it turns him into a target, kind of tall poppy syndrome, grips his colleagues, and Daniel becomes despised among his peers. The faithless men of the public service, the administrators, the satraps, they become jealous of Daniel and his favor with the king. Maybe it's because he's Jewish. Maybe it's because he worked for the Babylonians, the previous administration. Maybe they just think if they bring Daniel down, then they can get ahead themselves. Uh, whatever the reason, they decide Daniel has to go. The distinguished servant becomes the despised servant. Uh, the, the faceless men of Babylon, they start to compile their, their dirt file on Daniel. You can imagine that they, they kind of wander into the HR department and they, uh, they, they ask around whether Daniel's ever gotten into any, any trouble around the, around the workplace. Uh, maybe Daniel made a mistake on an expense claim during his many de decades of public service. Maybe they can use that against him. Uh, maybe they hack his social media, they scroll his old posts are there any photos of him out there with the boys, uh, two beers in the air? Maybe he posted something rash when he was in his youth. Uh, they interview his subordinates. Is there any workplace bullying? Maybe a toxic leadership or something. Has Daniel ever lost his cool in a meeting? You know, really flown off the handle. Is there something that he did that was out of line? What well, this, the administrators and the satraps, verse 4. They tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel is squeaky clean. They've got nothing on him. He's a standout employee. In his long, long career of public life, he has done the right thing. He has done a good job. They're left with only one angle of attack in verse 5. Verse 5, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They think they know what Daniel's only weakness is. His only weakness, his only vulnerability is his devotion to his God. If they're going to get rid of him, it's going to have to have something to do with his faith in God. Daniel, he was distinguished, yet he was despised. Now, Darius the king, we meet someone who's, who's duped, he's tricked, and he is a disaster. Uh, Darius is tricked, he's outmaneuvered by his subordinates. Verse 6, uh, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. 
The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, well, they should be thrown into the lion's den. Now, that's the pitch. Uh, everyone prays to you, king, uh, or their lunch for the lions. Uh, and uh, there's a, a number of different reasons why Darius might have thought this was a good idea. Maybe he thought it was a, a, a plan that they had hatched to unite a diverse empire. Darius, we're from so many different countries and religions and cultures. If only we could get everyone to, to, to pray to you, king, then we could all unite around you. Maybe that's what he thinks is a good idea. Maybe they appealed to his vanity or the insecurity he felt as a new king. Darius, you're so great and powerful. Why not just dis- display your majesty, impose your rule uh, by insisting that everyone prays to you alone? Whatever the reason, whatever reason Darius goes for it, he, 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 he's, he's, he's drawn in by this idea. But he's deceived. He's duped. He falls into their trap. He enacts the law that's going to condemn his most loyal servant, the elderly Daniel. Verse 8. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Darius put the decree in writing. You see, he plays straight into the hands of these conspirators. And it turns out to be a disaster for Darius. Daniel, the loyal servant of both God and the king, he continues his daily practice of praying to the God of Israel. Now, notice Daniel here. He doesn't, he doesn't panic. Daniel doesn't rush off in a flap and doesn't kind of, kind of in this panic start pleading to God. He doesn't act like a man with his back up against the wall. No, Daniel, in full understanding of the consequences, in full knowledge of what is likely to happen, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. Now, this is a disaster for Darius. You see this in verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. It's kind of this ironic moment for Darius. Uh, He's on the throne, but he's not much of a king. The crown is on his head, but he has been bossed around by his entourage. He's tricked, he's duped. He's a disaster of a king. And he's forced to execute his most trusted advisor. But back to Daniel for a moment. See, Daniel here, he just doesn't skip a beat. He doesn't even need to think about it. Daniel, he just gets on faithfully worshipping his God like he has always done. He gets there and he faces not Babylon, but Jerusalem. And it's a picture for us. He places his hope on the place place of God's promised blessing. He places his hope on Jerusalem, the the place where God said he would pour out his blessing on all his people. And Jerusalem, at this point, is just a pile of rubble. I just want to pause there. Some of us might be thinking about Daniel, and we might be thinking, Daniel, why did you have to do it? 
Daniel, why did you have to poke the bear? Why did you, or the lion in this case? Why did you have to do it, Daniel? You know, Daniel, it was only 30 days. It was only a month, not even one of those months that has 31 days. It was just 30 days. What is 30 days in a lifetime of serving the king? And Daniel, all you had to do was keep quiet. It didn't say you had to pray to Darius. It just said you couldn't pray to anyone but Darius. So you could have just taken a 30-day break from praying to your God and it would have been fine. And Daniel, mate, think of the opportunity you're giving up. I mean, not just the money and the reputation. I mean, you're just about to retire with this glorious legacy and your government pension. But, but think about the, the opportunity you're giving up and all the good you could have done for God and his people if you were Darius's right-hand man. Why'd you do it, Daniel? And we might be thinking ourselves, it's just one day. You know, we're at Purple Day. It's just one day. It's just the colour. Just one day of going with the flow, and then tomorrow we can get back to living the way that we think God wants us to live. It's no big deal. Maybe it's just a special lanyard, or, or going to the celebration lunch, or signing on to the new policy that no one ever really reads anyway. Maybe it's just following the new procedure of how things are supposed to be done around here. Maybe it's just that new signature on your email. It's only a few characters. Or reciting that particular karakia at work that worships the wind and other gods. It's no big deal. Let's, let's not make a mountain out of a molehill. Let's not rock the boat. Maybe going with the flow so we can get to the table where the decisions are made. Maybe we can, going with the flow so we can get there and then when we're there, we'll, we'll, we'll exert some Christian influence. Why'd you have to do it, Daniel? Well, Daniel, Daniel saw that this is a fulcrum moment. This is the point where the seesaw is going to tip one way or the other. And so it says, at that moment, at that fulcrum moment, where the whole thing was going to go one way or the other, it says that at that moment, Daniel focused on Jerusalem. He prayed to his God. He didn't concede to Babylon. Now, why does it... Why is it focusing on Jerusalem all that important? Uh, you can imagine being in uh, Daniel's place, in a place like Babylon. Uh, for him, it's like being posted to New York or London, living at the center of it all, uh, amongst the bright lights, full of opportunity laid out before you. But Daniel is turning his back on that. And he's saying, my hope is not here. My hope is in that small town in the middle of nowhere. His windows are open in that direction. And he's saying, that is where my hope is. That is where my future is. Now, the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. They'd crushed it. They'd ripped down the temple. The whole city was laid waste. It was a rubble heap. And Daniel is saying, that is where my hope lies. It's in that place. In that place that looks like it's on the wrong side of history. That place that looks like it is so lost, that is where I put my hope. That is where I'm heading. So how do you know how you'll, how do you know how you'll respond when the gotcha moment comes for you? 
How do you know what you'll do? Well, it all has to do with where your hope lies. Like Daniel. It all has to do with where your hope lies. Does your hope lie in Babylon? Does your hope lie in the job or the position or the career or the comfort or the relationship or the family or the safety or the security that this world offers? Is that where your hope lies? Or does your hope lie in the rubble heap of Jerusalem? Or, more specifically for us, does your hope lie on a hill just outside Jerusalem? on a hill where Christ was crucified. Because unless your hope lies there, unless your identity is found there, unless Christ and His cross is the focal point of your life and your hope and your future, if it is anywhere, if your hope is anywhere but there, when the crunch comes, you'll concede every time. If our hope is anywhere other than Jesus, we're just going to cave and we'll go with the flow. And the reason is, we will do anything we can to keep the thing that we hope for. We'll do anything we can to keep the thing we hope for. And so if ultimately we hope in the career or the relationship or the approval of others, when the crunch comes, we're going to cling to that because our hope is not in Christ. And for Daniel, this gotcha moment, he's ready for it. He's ready for it. When it comes, he doesn't even flinch. It's almost like a a reflex action. Daniel just goes home and keeps trusting in his God. He keeps worshipping his God. He keeps doing what he's been doing three times a day for the last 60 years. Uh, There's a saying, uh, you can't take out of the bank what you haven't put in. Uh, do, you know, do you know what it means? Like you, you can't take out of the bank what you haven't put in. Uh, Daniel has cultivated a life. He has developed uh, a, kind of like a spiritual muscle memory such that when the challenge comes, his reflex move is to keep looking to Jerusalem. His reflex move is to keep trusting in God's promises. And so we need to realize that when the crisis comes, When that pinch point comes, we're going to default to whatever we've been doing before. We're going to keep heading in the direction that we're already going. Don't think that when that crisis moment comes, that's the moment where you'll be able to do a quick U-turn and reorient your whole life and your hopes and your dreams around God and His kingdom. And so we need to realize that when the crisis comes, uh, we're going to keep heading in the direction that we're already traveling. And so if right now we're not cultivating a deep hope in Jesus, if right now we're not worshiping God with our whole life, then we shouldn't expect that anchor to be there when we're forced to choose. The reality for many of us here is that um, we're not going to have a cataclysmic Daniel and the lion's den moment, we're not going to have an Andrew Thorman moment where the CEO calls us, so whether we're called into the boardroom and we're given two options and we're told on the spot to decide. It's not likely to be like that for us. The decisions that we're likely to face are actually not likely to be all that huge. And so it might not be all that clear. It's not going to be kind of a black and white binary thing like it was for Daniel. 
You see, you or I are more likely to face a death by a thousand cuts than kind of stare down the guillotine. Hundreds of small decisions that come each and every day. Hundreds of small moments where we're being forced, even in the smallest ways, we're being forced or enticed to hope in the world rather than hope in Christ. To put our dreams in what we can achieve in this life rather than the life to come. And so it'll be small things like, can I be bothered to make it to church this week? It's so wet outside. Do I really have time to read my Bible or to pray? I'm so tired. Can I keep serving God and His people? Maybe I just need a break. Do I really this month have to give generously to those in need, to the work of the gospel? I've got these new opportunities at work. Sure, it might mean I can do a little bit less around the place, but you know, it, it could lead to something great. Now, I know, like, I, I know that this is church and these are, those are trite things. You hear them all the time. Come to church, read your Bible, pray, go to community group, give money. Like, I know that those are things that like, we, we talk about all the time and they could be like water off a duck's back. But in all of those things, they are small, mundane, everyday decisions. These micro moments where we need to keep cultivating trust in Jesus. Where we need to keep putting our hope in Him and the cross. We're much more likely to die a death of a thousand cuts than have to stare down the guillotine. In these micro moments, we need to keep trusting in Jesus. We need to keep putting our hope in Him and His kingdom. And it makes sense to cultivate this deep hope in Jesus because He is the Saviour of those who hope in Him. See, time and time again, as we've worked, through our, uh, worked our way through the book of Daniel, we see over and over again, there is only one King who rules over all. There is only one God who can save. Uh, and where better to see this than on the, the lips of King Darius himself, uh, the God who couldn't save Daniel. You see, as Daniel is pulled from the lion's den, Darius declares, verse 27, God rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, as we see time and time again, God of Israel, he is the one who saves. He is the one who saves his servants when they place their hope in him. When they place their hope in him, he turns up, he acts, he intercedes. And here we see he, served, he saved his faithful servant, Daniel. God has proven himself to be faithful time and time and time again. Daniel's salvation, it comes because he trusted, he hoped in God, not in what he had in Babylon. Have a look there in verse 23. As, as, as the king realizes that Daniel's alive, he says, it says, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in God. God rescues those who hope in him. And it all ends well with Daniel. He's not lion meat. He's been promoted. Uh, his God is honored throughout all the kingdom. Uh, now, we might think, um, all's well that ends well, Daniel. Uh, we might think, oh, look, if we can just learn this technique that Daniel had, like where 
You know, if we, we, if we learn the technique that Daniel had where we pray with an open window that happens to be facing towards Jerusalem, you know, if, 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 we, can just, if we can just nail that method, then we'll be right. Uh, if we think there's some trick or technique here, something to be mastered, we're actually missing the point. You see, the story of uh, Daniel chapter 6 is not a story of uh, how to win friends and influence people. Uh, it's not a story about, um, you know, the perfect uh, discipleship program that's going to mean that you go from success to success. The story of Daniel chapter 6 is a gospel story. Uh, the story is not about you and your personal lions. Daniel's story is about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Daniel we look to. You see, Jesus fulfills Daniel's framework. You see, it was Jesus who was the only one who has lived that when he was accused, all that could be said was, I find no basis for a charge against him. You see, Jesus, he was faultless. He was faultless before the ruler of the universe, faultless before the leaders of his people. But jealous leaders accused him and, uh, and brought him uh, before another disastrous and duped leader, Pilate. Pilate who handed down an unjust judgment, even against his own desires like Darius. And Jesus was taken not to a lion's den, but he was taken to a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified where he was thrown to the lions, so to speak. And Jesus was placed in a, in a tomb, in a den, and a stone was rolled over the entrance. And just like Daniel, a seal was placed over the tomb. And night descends. And then one morning, Jesus emerges alive raised up without a scratch, raised to the right hand of glory on high. That is Jesus. This is a Jesus story. And that makes all the difference for us. You see, that same Jesus who went to the cross, that same Jesus who was persecuted, who was reviled, he has been raised. And he is our great king. And he offers us great and real and living hope. And so that when this happens to us, we don't, we don't need to get angry. We don't need to despair. Instead, we have hope. And our hope is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this life, one day we will stand before the true ruler of the universe, the living God who endures forever, his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end, as Darius said. We will stand before him. And whatever's been said about you in the culture, whatever's been said about you in your workplace, whatever's been said about you in your family, whatever you've had to put up with at work or in the pain of friendships or losses or whatever cost you have borne, if you hope in Jesus... When we stand before him on that last day, you'll hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Join me in my kingdom.
Now, God's word doesn't promise us that it'll be easy. But it certainly does promise us that it'll be worth it in the end. So will you pray with me for God's help as we seek to live for him? Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for these words in Daniel chapter 6. Lord, thank you for the model of Daniel's faithfulness to you. Lord, we pray for ourselves that we might hope in you, that we might hope in you over and above the things of this world, over and above the popularity, the success, the opportunities that are placed before us, so that when we're forced to choose, we might keep worshipping you, that we might be with you on that last day, that we might hear the words from you, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, help us, Lord, to persevere, even though it won't be easy, to persevere because we know it will be worth it in the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.